number of years ago, back in 1981, which is a long time ago, um, it was my first pastorate. I was uh, working up in Wisconsin. I was an associate pastor, and we had dinner with a man who uh, was a, just a neat guy from Great Britain. His name was Stephen Olfert. Some of you maybe have heard of him. He was a Keswick preacher out of uh, Europe. And um, over dinner one day, one day uh, he said to me, he said, Tom, he said, here's something you can pray for for the rest of your life, being a pastor. And I said, what's that? And he said, pray for beauty and balance in your life. And I often wondered sometimes what that really meant, but I've always prayed that in my life, that I would be have beauty in my life and I would have balance in my life. Well, as Scott gave me this passage to preach on this morning at the end of Philippians chapter 1, it began to resonate with me that, yeah, that's it. That's what beauty and balance is all about. But I want to give you the big idea this morning. The big idea is this, that hope dealers live a life worthy of the gospel. Hope dealers live a life worthy of the gospel. Secondly, I want you to know this. The worthiness of your life will be directly proportional to how much you value the gospel. So we've got to start somewhere. If we're going to have beauty and balance in our life, we've got to start with the gospel. Now you just had communion and you experienced or tried to remember back that day when Christ gave his life for you. But you know, the gospel has been kind of, I don't know, sterile lately. When you hear that word, I I don't know about you, but the longer you've been a Christian, the gospel just becomes something of more of a head knowledge thing where it's like, yeah, yeah, I know it. It's the good news. And, and, and according to scriptures, it was that Jesus died and he was buried and he rose again on the third day and he died for my sin. And so you just got a chance to reflect on that a little bit during communion. How much of a reality is the gospel to you this morning? How much do you really value it? I've struggled with that over my life and um, I really try to value the gospel and I was trying to figure out how could I explain that to you this morning that 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 you can kind of grab onto it and for me I think about my life how many people have really sacrificed themselves for me gone out of their way for me and I can only think of a handful maybe one handful of people in my life that have gone out of their way to be sacrificial for me and when that's happened it brings tears to my eyes. I just, I, you would do that for me. I, I mean, I'd so appreciate that because I've been kind of always in that giving mode as a, as a pastor and in doing a ministry, but it meant so much to me. And then it just dawned on me one day, and I know this sounds maybe pretty simplistic, and but no, Jesus, you did that for me. For God so loved Tom that he gave his life for me. 2,000 years ago, he knew I was going to be on this planet in the 21st century. And he died way back then, knowing that if I was the only one on the foot of that cross, that he would die for me. Are you kidding me? And I thought about that again. I was taking communion this morning and it brought tears to my eyes again to think that, Lord, no, 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 I know you died for everybody, for God so loved the world, but you died for me. Does that resonate with you this morning? Your own heart? How much do you value the gospel? Because if we're going to live a life worthy of the gospel, then we need to make sure that we value that gospel. And so I want to go to the scriptures here and we'll begin to see then what this balance and beauty looks like so that we can live this life worthy of the gospel. Okay, so let's, if you have your Bibles or your your, uh, iPads or whatever, turn to Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. We're going to finish up the first chapter of Philippians today. 
with hope dealers. Whatever happens, he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's your memory verse. You've got a card in your bulletin. I would encourage you to write that down. It's very simple. It's just a partial verse. So even those of us who aren't good memory people, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. As I looked at that word worthy, it really stuck, something stuck out to me. As I got into the the Greek original meaning of that word, it means to bring equilibrium to. And I thought, aha, is he talking about balance here? And so I thought of this illustration this morning that I want to share with you that kind of helps you discern whether you are in balance when it comes to the gospel, whether you're living this life or the gospel. So I have this balance up here, which gives you an idea of where I'm going through this. And that number one, on the left side of the equation, we have the gospel. On the right side, we have a worthy life. And they're in balance. They're in equilibrium. So what, in essence, you are living a worthy life is giving a proper weight to the gospel so that you're living your life with that equilibrium. Unfortunately, though, many of us live outside of that balance. And I want to give you some other illustrations that I think will help us do that. And so there are three ways that we can do, or two other ways we can do that. One's through legalism and one's through uh, license. But when we think about legalism, we, we see here that what's happening is we're giving more weight or trying to add more to the gospel in the way we live our lives. And so we think about the Pharisees who are trying to add all these laws and all these things to the message of grace. And there are a lot of people who still live there. And you say, well, I'm not one of those people that live there. Well, when you think about what uh, legalism really is, you begin to understand that it's more of a performance-based type of Christianity. And people who tend to do this are people who are a little bit more perfectionistic oftentimes, maybe type A, they're, they're really performers. And what comes out of that sometimes is judgmentalism, and you can't help but be hypocritical. And you end up being sort of this religious person that a lot of people are reacting to in our day and age because they don't like organized religion, because they see all this hypocrisy, because they, all these people are busy doing to somehow prove that they're worthy of God's love, which is really nonsense according to what the gospel really says. It's the gospel of grace. It's an unmerited favor. So I don't know whether you kind of have a tendency sometimes in your own life to be sort of performance-based, where you're having something to prove and something to lose, and so you're out there busy doing things, quote, for God trying to still earn his love and his and his, uh, his compassion. So that's one side of the equation that can get out of balance, and maybe some of you are there. Here's the other side of the equation. I call this license. And the idea here is, is that what we're doing is we're diminishing the weight of the gospel, and we're living our lives on the ragged edge of doing whatever we please. And I call that more cultural Christianity. 
We're seeing a lot of that in our day and age. The cultural Christian is one of these people that lacks those biblical absolutes. They're taking scripture and they're kind of twisting it or rationalizing it to the point where, you know, it doesn't really matter if I have premarital sex. It doesn't really matter what I do with my life. It doesn't really matter if I'm living with my, my girlfriend or my boyfriend or whatever it is. It doesn't really make any difference. And so the gospel becomes so diminished. And so essentially a cultural Christian lacks those boundaries. They've compromised. They're ignoring biblical absolutes. A good example of that, I was with a couple of guys uh, as I was out with some deputies the other day. And one of them, uh, both of them were told me that they were Christians, that they had accepted Christ at an earlier age. And um, but they were both divorced and they both basically are living with their girlfriends right now, thinking about getting remarried. And I talked to both of them and I said, how does this add up? You know, you, you say you're a Christian, but how does it add up from what biblically we're told is, are really those boundaries that you need to have? And yet this is what's going on in Christianity today. The culture has so saturated our belief system that we're no longer listening to biblical absolutes. And so we're living on this edge, diminishing the value of the gospel from day to day, almost living out this grace that, that's really been almost trampled on by people's lives. And there's a lot of folks that are living there these days. They've dropped out of church because they don't like organized religion, but they're living just as hypocritically because they're living a double life. So that's out of balance. So let's look at the third concept, which I call living life in liberty. That's where everything, again, is in balance with the gospel. Let me illustrate that again with another illustration. Think about yourself being a goldfish for a minute, okay? Can you pull that off? Here's an aquarium. And God has really set us up in this aquarium as a fish. And there's a lot of room in this aquarium to swim around. But a person with license, they're swimming around in this aquarium and saying, you know what, this is a little too confining for me. I need to go out there and explore the world. And so you as a goldfish, you decide to flip out of the aquarium, right? You flip out of the aquarium, you say, whoa, this is great, man, I'm free. And you start flopping around in your life. And you discover that's not where life really is. You need to get back in the aquarium. The person who's legalistic often finds themselves sort of living, hiding in their holy huddle inside the the little cave, you know, kind of restricting themselves to a lot of different rules and regulations and so on and so forth and being so performance oriented. And God said, I've given this whole aquarium to swim around in. And you want to stay right here? So a person of liberty understands that God has created us with certain boundaries. And those boundaries are, we're free to swim all we want to in those boundaries. And that's what liberty is all about. There's great freedom in knowing that you're swimming within the confines of God's designed will for us as he's created us. And that's a person who's living life in balance, that understands that, that there's some freedom there in our lives to be able to make some decisions. But when there's biblical absolutes, we draw the line there in our lives. That's living life with life, beauty, and balance. So there's a lot of... There's there's an old saying in, in the U.S. today. It's called life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? I want to share with you this morning that really there's another way to look at this, and that's to say this, that it's life, worthy life, liberty, and the pursuit of hope. That's what this is about. Because when we live our life in balance, we are hope dealers. We're hope dealers. 
So let's move on because that's the balance side of the equation. When I, when I, Stephen Olford told me that, you know, this is all about beauty and balance, it began to make sense to me when we think about the word worthy. But now let's shift over to the idea of what it means to live a life of beauty. Okay. Well, Paul goes into that in the rest of this particular passage. He starts out by saying in chapter uh, 1, verse 27, he's talking about integrity. He says, then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm. He's talking about here this matter of integrity. This, this word integrity means something to the idea of design boundaries, balance, um, cohesiveness, a strong moral compass, adherence to moral character, being honest. All of these things are a part of integrity. Don't you find that people of integrity radiate a certain kind of beauty, a certain kind of hope? This is what Paul was really praying. He said, listen, whether I'm there or whether I'm not there, I want to see a consistency in your life, in your conduct. I remember way back in the day when I was selling women's shoes in college and uh, uh, it was an interesting job to say the least. But anyways, we were told by the regional people that whenever there was a woman that came into the store, we needed to show them at least five pairs of shoes. So if they wanted this particular style, then we were to bring out four other styles that are kind of similar to that because that was the best way to get a, a woman to make a decision to buy something. And then on top of that, you were always supposed to show them some of the accessories. You know, so we'd have to go grab a handbag and say, oh, doesn't this look great? The handbag matches the shoes. And then there were things, you know, where where we had to have buckles. Back in the day, there were these shoes that were plain. You could put different buckles and decorations on the shoes. And so we were had we had to sell so, many, so much a percentage of that. And so that was the protocol. But do you think that all of us salesmen did a very good job of that when the regional manager wasn't around? Probably not. But when the regional manager showed up, you can bet that those five pairs of shoes were stacked on the floor and all those accessories were being shown, right? Lack of integrity, wasn't it? And that's what Paul was really saying to these folks. He said, listen, I can be there and I can hold you accountable. But what's it going to be like when I'm not there? How are you going to live your life? And so integrity is is a, a part of it is how do you live your life when nobody's looking? There's a great scripture that I found in. um, It talks about integrity and it's in Proverbs chapter 10, verse nine. And it says the man of integrity walks securely. Don't you find that people who are secure and walk honestly And uprightly and consistently, don't you find those folks the ones that are most attractive? Isn't it frustrating when you're hanging out with people who are insecure, who are hypocritical, who are not acting and walking with integrity? And so Paul's just saying, guys, make sure whether I'm watching or not, that you conduct yourselves worthy of the gospel. So integrity is a part of beauty. How's your integrity this morning? But secondly, Paul goes on to say in verse 27 again, he said, then stand firm in one spirit contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. He's saying the second thing I want you to understand about beauty is, is that unity is a beautiful thing. Isn't it a beautiful thing when you're in unity with your wife or your husband? Isn't it a beautiful thing when the church is actually in unity, when we're working together with one mind and one spirit and one purpose? Unity is such a critical component to beauty. 
You know, have you ever noticed that there's nothing uglier than to be around people who are in conflict? It's so tough. You know, if you want to be a hope dealer with your kids, get your marriage together. If we want to be a hope dealer to this community, our church needs to stay in unity. And there's one other piece to this idea of unity. Um, I think about somebody being in unity with themselves. You know, what I mean by that is that there's a lot of people, if you go back to the license area, where, where, where they're, they're so conflicted because they're living one, basically their life into the world, and they're living their other part of their life in the church. And so they're conflicted in themselves. And so they become sort of hypocritical. And the scripture says, you know, a man like that is a double-minded man, and he's unstable in all his ways. He's not secure. There's nothing beautiful about that. Jesus prayed a prayer for us that I think is pretty powerful in John chapter 17. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will be believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You're getting this idea that unity creates hope. Go to the next verse. Is that the whole thing? You know, I'm reading off of here instead of off my notes. So anyways, the idea here is, is that what, what God is saying to us is that when we're in unity, there's an expression to the world that we got our act together. And that's attractive. That's attractive. And yet sometimes the church has done just the opposite. You know, there's so much division in the church and there's so much disunity and disharmony in, in the lives of Christian marriages and all of that, that we're not expressing hope. We're expressing disaster. That's the second issue. Are you in unity? As a mom and a dad, are you in unity within the framework of the team that you're on? Are we in unity as a church? It's Nothing is more beautiful and brings more hope than people working together for a common cause. That brings hope. Let's go to the third part of beauty. I call this one grit, Okay. I'll call this grit. Let's define that a little bit because grit means that somebody is, is courageous, who's got some spunk, who has some tenacity, some perseverance and resolve. And so he writes again to the Philippians. He says, listen, you guys, you need to live your lives without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. He's saying, listen, I know it's tough out there. I know that there's a lot of persecution in your life. I know that I'm sitting here in prison because of that. But I want you to stand tall. I want you to have some grit. I want you to have some tenacity. You know, it's easy in our culture today because we're being so much more marginalized as Christians in our culture. Amen? I mean, that's where we're at these days. We're not any longer the moral majority. We're the moral minority. But sometimes as Christians, we kind of go into our little holy huddles and just say, oh, we're all a bunch of victims and I hope the Lord comes back. And God say, wait, wait, wait. I need more courageous, tenacious people who are going to be out there. We're living the life worthy of the gospel. These people were living... What Scott preached about last week, for to me to live is Christ and to die is to gain. I got nothing to lose. 
And I think that we as a people who supposedly believe that the gospel is the good news, when are we going to be a little more tenacious, a little more bold, a little more courageous, a little more, you know, have a little more spunk when it comes to sharing our faith? There's nothing more that communicates a lack of hope than a bunch of quitters, right? I remember the day in the early days of our church plant down in Phoenix in 1982. And I remember months would go by and we would see folks come and they would go. And if I had a dime for every person that said to me, we just love you and Lynn so much, but you know, we just got to find a church that has more to offer. And I would go away feeling hopeless and saying, yeah, a bunch of quitters, you know, it just didn't help my, but you know what? God called us and God made sure that we stayed the course and that we were tenacious and that we were courageous and we kept going and we kept fighting and we kept having that spunk and that tenacity and God grew a, a wonderful church of about 1,400 and hundreds of people came to Christ and we were able to plant four or five churches. But it took that grit and spunk and tenacity when there was always those temptations to quit. And I believe that every one of us have had those moments where we've been tempt- tempted to kind of quit on Jesus, to quit on this Christianity thing, to quit on our culture, but doggone it, God wants us to be more tenacious and courageous, and it's time that we get out there and really have a much bolder statement of faith. You buy that? Amen. I read this illustration this past week, and I couldn't resist sharing it. It was a, Some of you guys probably heard of Ray Stedman. One day, Ray was sitting in his home one evening and noticed that there was going to be a meeting of the gay community in Palo Alto, California. He thought, you know, I'm going to go to that meeting. And he went in, and everyone sat on the floor. Nobody knew who anybody was. And as a group, they were railing on the church and railing on Christians and their attitudes toward them. Just that He just sensed that militance and hatred, and it went on and on and on. The speaker finally asked, does anyone have anything else they want to say? (laughs) So Ray stood up, and he said this, My name is Ray. And I'm a citizen of this city. I'm one of the Christians you've been talking about. I'm sorry for the treatment you've received from many of my brothers and sisters. We meet down here at Peninsula Bible Church, and all you are invited, whoever wanted to come. He went on, I want all you to know that there is one ray of hope, and it is the hope that will bring you the relief and the life you need. That, my friends, is the courageous hope dealer. We need more guys like Ray on the front lines. But it's all about understanding from the very beginning whether the gospel has any real value in our lives. And so I want to ask you this question. Is the life you lead worthy of the gospel? These are hard questions. I'm not here to inflict guilt. I'm just here to say that I struggle with these things too. I so believe in the gospel. And I want my life to represent the gospel in a worthy way so that someday when I stand before Jesus face to face, he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. 
But all my friends, I just know that there's a lot of us here that have allowed that word gospel to kind of slip away in our thinking, to slip away in its real value. And consequently, we've been kind of lethargic and we've not really understood the message of the gospel again. And I just challenge you as we went through communion this morning again, that those would be moments where it can renew your hope and love for what the gospel has done for you, not the whole world, but for you. Personalize it. And bring it back to your own heart and life. I was sharing, thinking about that this morning. I was laying on my, on the floor in my bedroom and I was uh, praying and thinking about what God was going to speak to me about this morning. And I was thinking about the gospel again and the tears just came to my eyes thinking, Jesus, you did that for me? Are you kidding? I can't believe you would do that for me. So it was good to refresh my own spirit this morning with that, to be reminded again that Jesus died for you. All of us. He died for you personally. You know, I thought about this over time. People have said this, you know, if you were the only one standing at the foot of the cross, Jesus would have died for you. And yet for those people who are living in that cultural Christianity world, it's like they sit at the bottom of the cross. They say, I don't give a rip. I don't care what you did for me, Jesus. I'm going to live my life the way I want to live it. I got my fire insurance. I got my ticket to heaven. So bug off. I'll get it together maybe later on in life. Maybe that's where some of you are at today. I don't know. Then there's some of us that are out of balance in the other way where we've just decided that, you know, I'm just going to keep working hard and performing and I'm going to hopefully someday I'm going to feel like, you know, I've done enough so that God will love me. Well, that's the wrong attitude as well. So I want to challenge you all to think about this. I've been praying in my life for the last 50 odd years. Lord, bring beauty and balance into my life. Would you pray that prayer with me this morning as I pray? Father, I thank you for Paul and his reminder that we need to live a life worthy of the gospel. And God, I have a hunch that there are some people in this room if they were really honest they've been sort of living outside the aquarium lately and they're discovering that it's not what it's cracked up to be I pray that they would repent and jump back into the waters Lord knowing that that's where we're going to find the greatest freedom for that person who still feels like they need to somehow add something more to the wonderful gospel of grace and unmerited favor. God, I pray that that person too would just lighten up and realize, God, that you love them just the way they are. That they don't have to perform to earn your love. And so, Lord, I pray again once more, one more time in my life. And I pray that that would be the prayer of so many folks that are sitting here this morning. God, I pray that I would have beauty and balance in my life. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me, for making the ultimate sacrifice. I I can't even fathom that you would do that for me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, 
visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.